Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Psalm 68. Um, it is Orphan Sunday today, and um, what I want to say just on the, okay, let me give you a couple of things on the front end, okay? Um, here's one of the things I want to give you on the front end. Uh, there is a table in the back. Um, we, as a church family, have partnered with the Sanctuary Foster Care and Adoption Services, and uh, they have a representative, Kevin, from their board, is here, and he um, would be so happy to visit with you. If you have questions after the fact, some of you are looking for him in the room. He's actually in the middle. You were looking back there at the table. That's not him. That's Josh. Okay, so... You're like, I know that guy. He's in the middle. He'll be at the table, though, after the fact. Um, Kevin from their uh, board of directors is here, and um, he would love to visit with you about uh, maybe some specific things or questions that you have. Uh, I want to give you that on the front end so that you know that's where we're going to end up, uh, that specific thing. Uh, Secondly, uh, just a note that as a church family, we stop and do this every year. Not because it's some cause that we as a church family feel like, oh, this is what we have to do. Not because it's my cause or some of your causes that you feel like you have to, that's not it. We stop and do this because we think this is the kind of thing that um, Jesus does. And that's what we continually talk about on this particular um, Sunday. So uh, we will uh, um, jump in here in this text in just a second. How many of you have had this happen? We've had several examples even this week just in our my family uh, where something so amazing stuns you, you stop and you're like, oh, that right there, Whew, it stopped you. And, it like, and then you're like, that is amazing. You see it. And then you're like, that is incredible. It could be uh, a sunrise. It could be a sunset, something in nature like that. We were driving yesterday, and the kid, a couple of kids are with me. I'm like, look, look, baby deer. And it was. It was like baby, baby deer. You know what I mean? And you're like, oh, that's so beautiful. When we see something amazing, it, it causes us to just pause, if you will, and then it, it provokes our praise. But both of those things are true. It, it causes us to kind of stop. But also, it, it, it brings us, it brings something out of us that looks and we go, that right there, that is a good thing. That is a good thing. That is a beautiful thing. That is a true thing. That is a right thing. That is a good thing all the way around. And then, more than that, more than that, j- just like yesterday, look, a baby deer. Look at that sunset. Man, did you see that? We not only pause and, and praise, but also we invite others into that as well. Where we say to them, hey, look, look, look at this, like, look up, see it. Do you, do you see that? And that's where we are today. Psalm 68 is a psalm, and it is about the victory of God and uh, how uh, God is, uh, um, he's the conquering king is, is the portrait that it consistently uh, portrays here. And so we'll start here uh, in the first uh, In the first verse, Shannon read it um, to get us started this morning. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke uh, is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Uh, Just a couple of things here. God's power. This is kind of the big, bold statement. God's power is praiseworthy. His power is praiseworthy. Why? Number one, God uses his power for good. Did you see it in the text? Um, 
God shall arise, enemies scattered, those who hate him shall flee, as smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away, like wax melts before the fire, the wicked shall perish before God. What does that mean? Church family, there is coming a day when evil will not win, finally and fully. Good will win, finally and fully. There is coming a day when addictions will finally and fully be put aside. There is coming a day when injustice will one day finally and fully be set aside. Why? Because God is too good and he is too powerful to let this stuff go on forever. Is the world broken? Yes. Is the world chaotic? 100%. Yes. Um, does that work its way down from the, the, the biggest parts of society down into our lives and from my own life upward toward the big parts of society? Absolutely yes. But it does not have the final say. Jesus says. And when it, when it says things like uh, the wicked shall perish before God, it's not as if uh, there's delight. Ezekiel is pretty clear about this. There's no delight in the perish of the wicked. But, but, but justice being done, we all can go, Phew. Finally, yes. And that's a good thing. God uses his power um, for good. And then look at verse 3. The, the wicked perish, but also the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. Did you use the word exult? Not exult, exult. It is like joyful dancing in praise. That's what. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. This is how God uses his power for the... To to defeat ultimately evil and to bring good to bear and righteousness to bear ultimately on the world. And he doesn't just use his power for good, although that would be enough. Look at verse 4. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. So that's what he's doing. He is singing himself and he's calling us to join in. He's wanting us to step into this as well. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, the I Am. Exult, there's that word again, before him. Exult before him. God's power is praiseworthy. He uses it for good, and he uses it for the good of a particular people. Look at verse 5. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. He sets the lonely, or settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, the rebellious will, will dwell in a... Father of the fatherless, defender of the widow, or uh, protector of the widow, is God in his holy habitation. What does that mean? Like, where he is, this is who he is. Like, it is part of his identity as God to express his goodness in this particular way. What, what does that mean? He is using his power for the defenseless. These are those who have no socioeconomic capacity um, to do good for themselves. They don't have boots, much less bootstraps by which they can pull themselves out of whatever situation that they find themselves in. They are beyond the capacity to help themselves. If you look in the ancient Near East... Um, there was no social security. There was no broad safety net instituted by government or other institutions. The family was uh, what was the social safety net. So particularly for um, widows, if, if your breadwinner died, nobody was coming along and saying, well, there's survivor's benefits. There may not be bread the next day. If you, as an orphan, had your parents, um, uh, or if you were a child who had your parents killed or uh, something else happened, um, you were put out in some... There was no reality in which somebody was going to come along and just rescue you or provide for you. He uses his power for uh, the defenseless. He is the father 
of the fatherless. Is God, listen, in his holy habitation, meaning this is who he is. You want to know what God is like? This is what he's like. He is the protector of the widows, the defender of the widow. And finally, he settles a solitary home. He takes the people who are lonely and he locates them. What he is saying to them is all, what he's saying to all of them, I see you. You may not feel seen. Other people may walk past you. Other people may skip by. Other people may uh, maneuver around. Other people may just look at you and go, who cares? But God, he sees you. He sees you. This is praiseworthy. Why? Because when the mighty use their power on behalf of those who are uh, vulnerable, we call that good. When the mighty take on the responsibility of saying, you know what, I have some power, I have some resources, I have some stuff in me, I got some goodness in me, and I'm to pour that out, I'm going to use that, I'm going to leverage that for the sake of this other. We call that a really good thing. Does anybody know the name Jacob Philadelphia? Does that ring any bells to anybody? Nobody? That's okay. I'll tell you about him. His dad was assigned to the National Security Council in 2008, worked there two years. Uh, ultimately took a different um, t- took a different job with the State Department. Uh, I believe he was transferring to Mexico at this point. So he did his two-year rotation with the NSC, uh, put him obviously in contact with some very, very powerful people and in some very important uh, rooms where important conversations were happening in situations. Well, at the end of his time on the NSC, as was kind of custom, um, he was invited to the um, White House, to the Oval Office, to take a, uh, a going-away portrait Okay, and so you show up, um, they let you into the Oval Office, everybody stands there, Mr. President comes in, oh, hello, hello, everybody, okay, smile, click, and then you go on, right? Well, in, in the throes of this, uh, the President comes in, it's um, uh, Jacob Philadelphia's dad, his older brother, um, and his mom, okay, so there's family of four there in the White House, uh, in the Oval Office, the President comes in, and um, he's uh, chit-chatting while they're kind of getting things set up. And um, he looks at the uh, older brother, uh, like young teenager, hey, you got any questions or whatever? Like, what, what's going on? And the older brother pipes up. It's like, yeah, why'd you cancel the F-22? Leave it to a teenager to be a punk, right? I mean, like, this is, no offense, y'all. But he's like, well, you know, viability, blah, 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 you know. He looks at the younger one, Jacob. He's about eight. How about you, man? He turns to his dad and says, do you think his hair's like mine? Because at his school, his friends had told him, dude, your haircut looks like the president's haircut. And so the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, he's got nuclear launch codes at the ready, right? He looks at the eight-year-old and says, well, touch it, dude, and bends down and catches... The photographer snaps the picture. President Obama, this is the only portrait of him that he kept the entire time in the Oval Office. Everything else swapped out. This one. The photographer um, ultimately called it um, hair like mine. That's what he called it. Because that little boy, Jacob, wanted to know, 
hey, I mean, this guy kind of looks like me. I wonder if his hair is like mine. Touch it, dude. When the President of the United States takes the time to bend down and answer the question of an eight-year-old boy, not just answering the question, but experientially letting him find the answer to that question in order to instill hope and goodness and that kind of thing, guess what? That's a cool thing right there. Uh, Jacob Philadelphia actually just graduated from college. President Obama sent him a message. Hey, congratulations. How cool is that, man? It's pretty awesome. When the powerful use their power for good and the good of the vulnerable, we call that amazing. When the Almighty uses his might, we call that so much like the God that we follow. This is what he does. Father of the fathers, protector of the widows, this is God. This is who he is in his holy habitation. He looks out on those who may feel solitude, who may feel dislocated. He, he, he looks out on those who may find themselves alone. And he says, I got my eye on you. Yes, I do. All the rest of this chapter, I'll just tell you, the rest of the song, Psalm 68, the, the rest of the song is just about God's incredible victory. So much so that he has these beautiful pictures of God riding in victory to places. He's, he's ascending on high and he's leading all these people to go along with him. But not just bringing deliverance to his people, although that would be enough, but also doing it in a way that, that helps them to be sustained in the throes of it. Like one of my favorite verses in the Psalms is actually uh, later in the chapter, Psalm 68, verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. Anybody need... Bearing up today? Daily bears us up. God is our salvation. To God, our God is the God of salvation. And to God, the Lord, belong deliverance from death. Not just delivering us, but also sustaining us. Not just saving us, but also sustaining us. This is the God who bends down toward us. This is our God. So it is Orphan Sunday. What, what does this look What does Father of the Fatherless, is God in his holy habitation, what does this look like? That's how I want to spend the next few moments just thinking about it. And I actually want to start with the need. What, what's the need? Um, in the state of Texas, I pulled um, data yesterday off of the uh, 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 Family Health and, uh, Services uh, website in, in the state of Texas. Um, in the state of Texas, um, there are 10,492 kids currently, as of yesterday, in foster care. 10,492. Um, about 2,000 of those, depending upon how you draw the map, about 2,000 of those are in the greater Houston area. So, I mean, that's important because uh, we are in the greater Houston area. And I'll say this again in just a moment. And while this is not a... Uh, um, uh, requirement in some way, but this is just the kind of thing that the gospel does among a people who are committed to follow Jesus. 10,492. Um, in the state of Texas, there are 5,925 kids waiting, waiting for adoption via the foster system. 5,900. Does that bother? I mean, like, does it, you know, kind of make your nose wrinkle or you're like, well, I don't know what to do about that. Um, as a church family, before we go any further, I don't want to uh, 
This is not about uh, getting out the guilt stick or the big Bible and just beating you with it. This is not that at all. As a church family, we have multiple families engaged in foster care. We have multiple families who have adopted or are in the process of this. So please hear me say, we're in on this. Why then? Why do we bother with this? Because it's a good reminder once a year to just pause and say, what is where is society today? What is going on out there? And how do we, the people of God, who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, brought into his family, how do we as the people of God, what do we do? How do we raise the flag to say, this is a part of what God desires for the people of God? And then how do we rally the troops to that? That's what this is about. So there's, we start with a need, 10,000, 5,900 waiting kids. All right, so here's, I want to put that in perspective by asking this question. How many Baptist churches are in Texas? Now, I'm not talking about the crazy Baptists. I'm talking about like our kind of... We have a few of those. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about us. Okay? How many of uh, the normal Baptists... Stop. When you, when you take the Baptist churches that we would say, yeah, yeah, they're, they're kind of our people. How many... How many uh, let's just take a guess from this section over here. This section over here. How many Baptist churches? 12,000, a little high. Uh, how about this section right here? 8,000. 5,000? Okay, um, right in the 830 service, somebody guessed 5,000, and then literally, as if we we're on the prices right, somebody said 5,001. I'm like, what in the world is happening here? Um, some of you wanted to cheat. Do not cheat, because it's on the back screen. And some of you are looking right now. You can go ahead and put it up now, Doug. Some of you were turning around. Approximately 6,700 Baptist churches of people that we would call kind of our people, our kinds of people, in the state of Texas. 5,900 kids, 6,700 Baptist churches. That doesn't count all the good Methodist folks and the Presbyterian folks and the Anglican. I mean, like, that's just the Baptist churches. The non-crazy Baptist churches at that Why, why do we stop every year? Because this is a reality. And again, this is, this is not the guilt sermon, not at all. This is us cheering one another on to say, this is the need. And we, the people of Jesus, we get to be a part of what he's doing to meet this need. So, how does Jesus respond? I just want to highlight three things here. They're all A words. Hang in there with me, okay? Um, first of all, he allies himself with them. When it says, Father of the Father is God in his holy habitation, meaning like this is who he is. He allies himself with them. Whenever you see Jesus interacting in the Gospels with people, it tends to be with people, if it's not the religious leaders of the day, um, the, the people who were uh, kind of really high-strung and kind of, they walked around like this the whole time, no neck because their shoulders made it disappear. If it's not them, then it is the people who have been outcast from society. It's the drunkards, um, the sinners, uh, the revival. In fact, he even says, you're a friend of sinners. And Jesus is like, I'm not guilty of any sin, but you calling me a friend of sinners, I'm guilty of that. 
He finds himself in the place where people have been cast out. He finds himself in the place um, where uh, identifying himself with those that society has rejected or at least, at least passed by. He allies himself with them. He, he um, is the one who uses his power for the most vulnerable. So in one of the parables that he tells, and if you've been around the Bible or around church, maybe you know the answer to this. If you've done this to the least of these, you've done it to, what's the, what's the last word there? If you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. He's saying, when the least of these get served, I get served. When the least of these get cared for, I get honored. He allies himself with them. So much so that uh, uh, when he's hanging on the cross, for instance, he looks at his mother, Mary. He's the defender of the widows. He looks at his mother and he says to John, the apostle, behold your mother and mother, behold your son. Um, earlier in the gospel stories, Luke 7, I believe, uh, there's a widow mourning her son's death and the funeral is walking by. Jesus is like, I've had enough of this. Stops the procession, steps up, touches the funeral beer, and raises the guy from the dead. He's like, I'm the defender of the widow. That's who I am in my holy habitation. Watch this. He allies himself with them. Question, is it messy? 100%. Always and without a doubt. Some of you who have been involved um, in these kinds of uh, situations or in this particular sphere of foster care and adoption, you would have story after story after story of the mess that it is made or the mess that it is. You know that it is difficult. You know that it is challenging. You know that it is a struggle. You know that there is good and there is um, uh, um, like inherent light in doing the things that Jesus wants you to do. But also because of the brokenness and chaos in this world, there is inherent dark. Like you know that it is messy. And in into that mess steps Jesus with you as you respond. He allies himself with them. He gets messy because the situation is messy. And even like to the detriment and to the frustration of people who followed him. Jesus uh, has a, he's kind of hanging out. Some kids like run up to him. Maybe it was like, do you think his hair is like mine? I, I don't know. And the disciples are like, get back, yo. What's Jesus' response? No, no. You let these little children come to me. The kingdom belongs to folks just like this. And listen, he picks them up and he touches them and he blesses them. This is who he is. This is God in his holy habitation. He allies himself. Secondly, he advocates for them. He advocates for them. Um, the, the, the Bible of Jesus is the Old Testament. Everybody gets that, right? Like you understand that when Jesus was here on the earth, that the Old Testament was just, was all they had. It is packed full of God advocating um, through the law, through the stories that are told, and through the prophets, the things that he says, um, through the poetry uh, that the poets set out, through art, um, through um, 
a law uh, and, and through the prophetic work right there and through the stories that get told, he is advocating consistently uh, for those who cannot advocate for themselves. He is giving a voice to the voiceless. He is the defender of the widow. He is the father of the fatherless. And you see this over and over again uh, in the Old Testament. This is Contra. Um, somebody a couple weeks ago put out something on social media. I almost brought the, uh, almost uh, brought a screenshot of it. I don't even bother giving that guy. But um, he, he said, um, among many other things, uh, he said, uh, the, the gospel, there is no moral imperative in the gospel to adopt. And while technically true, I, I just want to respond and say, the gospel, the story of the gospel is one of adoption. You and I, we get to call one another brother and sister, not because we came from the same family tree, but because God brought us into a new family tree. Not because we are um, DNA blood related, but because we have a blood kind of relation that comes by being forgiven by the blood of Jesus. You and I are family because God has adopted us into his family. That's where we are. So knuckleheads who get on various social platforms and say stupid stuff. I just want to say out loud, that's not good. He ends that particular um, comment by saying... uh, It is not a sin to love your own. There are some racist undertones in that that I will not touch today. Listen to me. For those of you who have fostered, for those of you who have adopted, we need to consistently just push back and go, guess what? They are our own. And whoever thinks otherwise doesn't deserve your time or even your response. They are our own. The, we're New Testament people, right? So like, we're the people of God. So what about the New Testament? Well, when Jesus is on the earth, how does he primarily reveal God as a father? 189 times in the Gospels. God is our father. Half-brother of Jesus, James. You want to know what pure and undefiled religion is? What is it? Yeah, definitely. Keep yourself unstained from the world. That's really important. But, but, but also, make sure you look out for, put your eye on widows and orphans. Over and over and over again. This is a reality. He advocates for them. But it's not just, can you look and you're like, I mean, yeah, it's in the Bible. I see that. How then, though, how does it work itself out? Like, I mean, has, you know, is this just a 20th century fad or 21st century fad coming forth over the last maybe 30 years where... Um, Uh, evangelicals in the western part of the world have kind of felt guilty and we need to step up into this? No, it's not. It has been around from the very beginning. So uh, Polycarp was a bishop in the 100s. So, you know, like 100 years after uh, the the church has been birthed and he is writing a letter to the church in Philippi. You remember Paul wrote a letter to the church of Philippi. It's in the Bible called Philippians. This is not in the Bible, but it's Polycarp's letter to the Philippians. And here's what he said. The elders or the presbyters for their part must be compassionate, merciful to all, turning back those who have gone astray, visiting all the sick, not neglecting a widow, orphan, or poor person, but always aiming at what is honorable in the sight of God and of our people. What is he saying? What is honorable in the sight of God? Well, one of the examples of that is not neglecting the orphan. Why? Because he's the father of the fatherless. That's who God is in his holy habitation. You want to look like God, 
This is one of the ways that that expresses itself. Um, uh, we have touched on this before, I know. There, there was a book written called Christian Charity in the Ancient Church. And uh, the, the, the historical outlook was, how did this express itself? Um, th- this is what he said. When we first uh, meet, uh, the, the mention of the, uh, the adoption and bringing up of foundlings. That's an um, interesting word, not one you use a lot. But foundlings, b- because they literally would be birthed and then cast out. And so people would go by and they would find a child, a baby. Bring up families. Uh, when we first hear about this, the work appears uh, not as a novelty, but as one long practiced. So they were doing it, and then somebody talked about it. It's one long practice. It is true that the heathen also used to take care of the exposed children, but for the purposes of bringing them up as gladiators, prostitutes, or to use them in their own service, there's always been trafficking. Always. And always been the use of those who are less fortunate for our own goods. Here's the last thing. Christians brought up these children. Christians brought up the children whom they took charge of for the Lord and for a respectable and industrious life. That is a different outlook. That is a historical reality. Um, Just last, a guy named uh, Hurtado, uh, Larry Hurtado, wrote the book, Destroy the Gods, kind of a sociological look at the early Christian ethic and how it transformed uh, the Roman Empire. He said there were five big things. One, it was multi-ethnic. Secondly, they had an emphasis on forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, Thirdly, they were hospitable to the poor and to the suffering. Fourthly, there was a biblical sexual sexual ethic in place. And lastly, they were, and I'm quoting, radically pro-life from the get-go. And this is how Christianity changed the Roman Empire in the first century. It has been a part of who we are forever. Why? Because the gospel is our story. Jesus allies himself with them and he advocates for them. And lastly, he acts in support of them. It says here in the psalm, he takes the lonely, he places them in homes, he puts them in a place where it's firm, he puts them in a place where it's stable. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. But it is stable. He puts them in a place that is safe, a place where they can grow, and a place where they can develop and have a voice. This is the kind of thing that God does. There is a um, a a, a praiseworthy nature to this. When we see God do these kinds of things, we're like, that's good. That's really good. So to be a person who follows Jesus and the gospel as it takes root in us, as it is our story, what, what does that look like? What, if this is the response of Jesus, what's the response of Jesus' people? Same thing. We ally ourselves to them. Here's the question. Do, do you see them? Do you see them? Are there opportunities around you that maybe if you pause for just a second, you go, hey, wait, 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 I see that. I can step into that. I can help there. I can do this. Secondly, do you advocate for them? Where is your presence felt? Where's your presence felt? Um, You go visit with uh, Kevin at the back here in a little while and you talk to him about opportunities that the sanctuary has. Listen, I am not, because again, this is not the guilt talk. I don't think everybody should be a foster parent. I don't. But I think we all can engage in some important way. And so there are ultimately all sorts of expressions uh, that we could give uh, to these kinds of ministry. Where is your presence felt? And lastly, um, we, we, the people of God, we would act on their behalf. What, what do you think? How, how can my life engage with theirs? What would that 
look like? And I'll just run some things down, some opportunities. You ready? There are always opportunities for service and uh, activity. Like uh, several of our foster uh, parents here in the church family, when they get a new placement, you're already on this. So again, this is me cheering you on. You're already on this to go, hey, what do you need? I need a blanket and uh, two things of formula. It'll be there by two o'clock. You know, I mean, like you've got these kind of responses. Uh, that, that is the good thing. And I'm so happy that God has brought that about in us. But when it comes to how our life specifically can touch theirs, here are just some options. Number one, you can become... I'm a licensed babysitter because every so often foster parents need a break or they need to go out or they need to go to the store. And so to set yourself up for that uh, is a relatively simple process and uh, would give you an opportunity to step in uh, to that. Secondly, you become, you can become respite certified respite. Respite means like overnight babysitter. That's the easiest way to explain it. Meaning um, you can take them for short term uh, placements where you just uh, help as they have to go out of town or they have to be a part of this. You can respite. Thirdly, some of you um, are at the place where you're like, you know what? We've been thinking about this, praying about this. Maybe we do need to step into this. It is a much longer process to be uh, foster certified uh, or uh, to pursue adoption. The government is involved and they don't make it easy. I don't think it should be easy, y'all. We're easy. Everybody could do it. And I'm not sure that's good. So uh, you would be able to step into that. But but in those particular steps, babysitting, uh, certified, respite certified, Foster or adoption certified. Around that, it's one of the reasons we love the sanctuary. They talk about wraparound care. Around that are all these different ministries, all these different opportunities, all these different ways uh, that you can uh, step in. We ally ourselves with them. We see them. We advocate for them. We let our presence be felt, and we act on their behalf. We find moments where our lives can step in to, uh, to their particular situation and touch their lives. This is what we're after. Why? Again, one more time. Why? Church family, this is our story. This is our story. Jesus did bend down toward us. He, he gave himself for us so that we could be brought into his family. He died and was raised so that we would be a part of the story that he is telling. And he wants to tell it through us. So as a church family, these are, these are ways that we can step in because we're following him. Let me pray for us and then um, we'll have just a few minutes to respond. Uh, Father, over the next few moments here, I ask that you would uh, individualize the response. Because not everybody needs to or can step into this particular thing in the same way. but we can do something. So I pray um, that as you work on us by your Holy Spirit and kind of individualize uh, the things that you have said to us, um, wrap something specific for us as a gift, I pray uh, that we would have ears to hear it, heart ready to receive it, a, a, a place right now in our soul where it can really kind of get down in there and start doing the work that you want it to do. It's not a cause that we're joining, Father. We're following you. 
You're the father of the fatherless. That's who you are in your holy habitation. Call us to yourself. That's what I ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.